waka waka eh eh zamina mina sangalewa anawam ah ah zamina mina eh eh waka tribalism noun derogatory the behavior and attitudes that stem from strong loyalty to one's own tribe or social group a society motivated by cultural tribalism I remember reading a news article about a white contractor who was hired to repair the brakes on a golf cart for a black couple. The man showed up to their house with a Confederate flag flying on the back of his truck. I remember the father of the family later commenting how the man was polite and respectful. He seemed like a good guy, but the wife rejected him for his service because of the flag. The contractor offered to take down the flag, but they told him no. Later, he tried to contact the family again and apologized. The family replied by saying that the Confederate flag is disrespectful and encouraging him to research what that flag means to people of color. Quote, The times when that flag was brought up, multiple times during history, it was always to our, African Americans, detriment, negative to our plight, end quote, he said. The reason that this article sticks out to me is that the clear and obvious miscommunication between the two parties. It's almost comical if you look at it from an outsider's perspective. The contractor wasn't a racist. He was just showing off the flag that represented history or who knows what to him. Maybe he just liked the flag. But even though he was polite and cordial, the family saw an evil man who was there to harm them. Or if you want to be generous, a bigot. The first step to a failed state is when ethnic tensions arise. And clearly this ethnic group, which given its history has validity, feels oppressed. And we need to make a change so that we don't actually become a failed state. The region of Sudan has been ruled over by many different kingdoms, from the Kush, Meroe, Senarfunj, Darfur, and to the Ottomans. In the late 19th century, Britain dominated, with Britain's colony Egypt having special colonial status over the north of Sudan. Called a condominium, think of it like a colony within a colony. In 1881, the Mahdi, the messianic redeemer of the Islamic faith, a Sudanese fanatical Islamist, led a national religious war against foreign influence. He was successful in defeating the Turco-British forces, thus creating one of the only states in Africa free of colonial rule. By 1899, the Anglo-Egyptian army defeated the Mahdi, and the British gained military control of the region of Sudan. Due to the power of the Nile, the British focused most of their strength in Khartoum, the capital city, located in the northern region of the colony. The city was important, as it was where the Blue and the White Nile converged. The Nile River flows into Egypt, giving Sudan control of the water. By 1956, Sudan got independence from Britain, The independence was given in an attempt to prevent the country from coming under Egyptian control. Egypt at this time was led by Nasser, an anti-colonial, anti-British pan-Arabist. Since before the colonial times, there has been a deep divide between the Muslim North and the Christian South. The North had been predominantly Muslim since the Funj Sultanate invasion in the 16th century. In the 18th century, English missionaries came up from the South and converted a large number of the populace to Christianity. In 1955, an anti-Muslim secessionist movement took place in the south known as the Aniyanya Rebellion, Snake Venom Rebellion in the Mahdi language. It started the first Sudanese civil war, 1955-1972, which would last for approximately 17 years. Half a million people would die over the course of the 17-year war. 500,000 people, of whom only one in five was considered an armed combatant, were killed while hundreds of thousands more were forced to leave their homes. The war was divided into four major stages, the initial guerrilla warfare, the creation of the Aniyanya insurgency, political strife within the government, and the establishment of the South Sudan Liberation Movement. Meanwhile, the government in Sudan, which from here on out I'll refer to as North Sudan to prevent some confusion, just remember it as the modern state of Sudan, the Muslim state. 
was dealing with factionalism, leading to a prolonged war with the South. In 1956, a military coup occurs in Khartoum. The civilian government is toppled. In 1964, a junta, led by Aboud, collapses, leading to a civilian government to take control of the country again. The economy deteriorated during the times of civilian government, so in 1969, Colonel Jafar el-Numeri seized power with the support of the communist and socialist parties in a bloodless coup. In 1971, another failed communist coup occurs. El-Numeri survives and stays in power until the mid-1980s. In 1972, the Addis Ababa peace agreement is reached, granting the South self-government, but not independence. It ends the war but does little to address the problems facing Sudan. In 1978, oil is discovered in South Sudan. Many historians consider the First and the Second Sudanese Civil Wars to be the same, similar to World War I and World War II, with an 11-year ceasefire. In 1983, a major stage of the Civil War broke out, the Second Sudanese Civil War, 1983-2005. The reason for the Second Civil War started as a result of resource necessitation and oil being discovered in the south. The north being located on the eastern part of the Sahara Desert is non-arable and therefore in need of the crops from the south's equatorial region. Oil made up 70% of North Sudan's economy, and basically all of the wealth was sent to the elites in Khartoum. Roughly 2 million people died as a result of this war, famine and disease caused by the conflict. 4 million people in southern Sudan were displaced, at least once, and normally repeatedly. The civilian death toll is one of the highest of any war since World War II, and was marked by numerous human rights violations. These include slavery and mass killings. Aniyanya II was defeated by the SPLA and incorporated into the armies of John Garang. The SPLA, Sudan People's Liberation Army, led by John Garang, was always divided by tribal and political factors. John Garang is regarded as the founding father and symbol of unity in today's South Sudan. Interestingly enough, Garang believed in founding a secular new Sudan state that would overtake the North and the South, where all religions and all tribes had a say in the government. As a leader, John Garang's democratic credentials were often questioned, for example, according to Gil Lusk, quote, John Garang did not tolerate dissent, and anyone who disagreed with him was either imprisoned or killed, end quote. Under his leadership, the SPLA was accused of human rights abuses. In 1983, President Numari declares Sharia law. It wasn't rigorously enforced in the South. Nevertheless, many in the South objected, leading to a rebellion. In April 1985, the government in Khartoum changed due to riots in the North causing the war in the south to worsen. In 1989, Omar al-Bashir and Dr. Hassan al-Turabi take over in a military coup. The SPLA got support from Ethiopia, Eritrea, and Uganda, financial support from America, with President George Bush connecting with John Garang deeply on religious issues, calling him a partner in peace. In the USA, the war was characterized as Arabic Islam versus black people, digging into the sensitive topic of race in America. The SPLA fought relatively well for African standards. Both the North and the South committed atrocities. Washington was pro-South Sudan because Osama bin Laden stayed in Sudan until 1996 and they said Sudan was involved in enslaving the South. Dr. Hassan al-Turabi claims this was a lie and manipulation. The USA has described Sudan as a terrorist state. The Clinton administration authorized a missile attack on a chemical factory in Khartoum. It was a mistake. The factory had medicines to combat malaria, leading to a breakdown of relations. Sudan became internationally isolated. By 1999, oil began to flow from Sudan. Khartoum needed good relations with the USA for trade. By 2001, famine spread across Sudan. Oil could have saved the economy, 
but the SPLA targeted the rich oil regions. By 2002, various ceasefires occurred in the south. In 2003, rebels in Darfur, located in the west of North Sudan, started a western front, the SLA. They wanted the same concessions granted to the southerners. By January 2005, the USA, UK, Norway, and Kenya were working behind the scenes to make peace. War in the south was over, creating a state roughly the size of Arizona and New Mexico. The south would stay an autonomous part of Sudan, North Sudan, for six years. Then a referendum on peace would be had. Oil wealth would be shared equitably. The UN sent 10,000 soldiers to keep peace in the south. John Garang was sworn in as VP, the second most powerful man in North Sudan. He was secretly attempting to create his secular unified New Sudan state. Garang was killed in a helicopter crash just three weeks after assuming the office of Vice President of South Sudan. Salvakir Mayardi assumed the position of Vice President after Garang's death. Having risen through the ranks of the SPLA throughout the First and Second Sudanese Civil Wars, he is a hardened veteran of war. Salvakir is a stoic and soft-spoken man. He looks like the perfect African dictator, with a brawny build who is famously seen wearing his black Stetson hat a gift from President George W. Bush in 2006. He rarely makes appearances without the hat. There are many rumors that Kier could have orchestrated the helicopter crash. A few years earlier, Kier's rival, Dr. Reik Machar Teni, attempted a coup against Garang. Garang and Kier are from the same Dika tribe, whereas Machar is from the Nuer. Garang offered amnesty in an attempt to cement peace between the constantly warring tribal warlords. Machar, contrasting Kier, is a charismatic, energetic man who can regularly be seen dancing. Machar has always claimed to want a democratic, independent South Sudan, contrasting Garang's idea of a unified, with the North, Sudanese state. Machar has been called a Tut Dali Doth in English, which may be translated as adult boy, meaning uninitiated and literate. He has tried to transcend tribal divisions, and at one time attempted to ban initiation marks by tribes. Kier positioned himself as a reformer, using his inaugural address to call for the South Sudanese people to, quote, to forgive, though we shall not forget, injustices at the hands of the Northern Sudanese over the preceding decades, end quote, setting a dark tone for the future of the world's newest state. One of the main issues facing Africa today is tribalism. The modern states of Africa are overwhelmingly creations from the European colonial times. For example, take Rwanda, an ex-French colony, about the size of Maryland, with three main tribes, the Hutu, the Tutsi, and the Twa. In 1994, they had a terrible genocide, which some estimates claim to have killed one million people. South Sudan is home to around 60 indigenous ethnic groups and 80 linguistic partitions. The major ethnic groups are Dinka, with the vast majority, at 36%, represented by Kier, located in the northwest and center of the country. The Nuer, the main minority, represented by Machar, located in the northeast of the country. The Shiluk, represented by Johnson Ohlone. The Mural, represented by David Yaoyao. These are just a couple of the tribes, many of whom would later form the rebellions. The languages of South Sudan are Nilo-Saharan and are numbered at over 60 with some unintelligible dialects between the same tribes. English serves as the lingua franca in the capital Juba, but all over the country, like much of Africa, you can hear different languages depending on the region you are in. 
During the civil wars, the tribes fought mostly together for independence from the Muslim north. But there has always been infighting. Take, for example, the Boer Massacre of 1991 led by Reik Machar. An estimated 2,000 Dika civilians were killed, and as a result of cattle being stolen, another 25,000 died of famine. Historically, the people of South Sudan had a barter economy, with cows being the principal currency. Cattle raids were an accepted and honorable way to acquire wealth. The amount of violence enabled was limited by tribal elders. The government of Khartoum began a policy of divide and rule by arming young men with assault rifles in an attempt to promote extreme violence in these cattle raids to end the rebellions. The policy failed, but it did create a situation with a breakdown of civility and violence and armed the South greatly. In 2005, South Sudan was granted semi-autonomy until 2011, when an independent referendum would be given. In 2011, the referendum vote passed with 99% voting for independence. It was a bright day for the people of South Sudan. All had hope of a brighter future. Susan Rice, the then ambassador to the United Nations, gave a speech from John Garang Mausoleum in the capital Juba, saying, quote, The day of triumph for all who cherish the rights of people everywhere to govern themselves in liberty and law, end quote. Cooperation and civility quickly broke down. The SPLM, political wing of the SPLA, split along some say ethnic, some say political lines on how to spend the massive oil wealth South Sudan had accumulated between 2006 and 2009, approximately 2.1 billion U.S. dollars. Numerous rebellions occurred over ethnic tensions. The SPLA in Juba adopted a big tent policy, where the government would buy off militias and pardon generals, creating an incentive to rebel. Even during times of peace, the different ethnic groups always had high levels of distrust between each other. In 2012, Kier began reforming the government on an unprecedented scale. Rumors of a coup started to be heard. The move was seen as a power grab by his rivals, with Machar speaking out against Kier. And in 2013, Kier dismissed Vice President Reik Machar with his entire cabinet. Kier was hosting a meeting on the evening of Sunday, the 15th of December, 2013. Machar boycotted the meeting. A soldier started firing at the meeting, which Kier accused as a coup attempt. Kier rearmed only the Dinka soldiers. Fights broke out all over Juba. Many of Kier's political enemies were detained following the battle, and Machar fled Juba with soldiers and cattle. Kier accused Machar of orchestrating the coup. Some supported Kier. Kier warned of fighting becoming tribal, declaring on television, quote, I will not let the events of 1991 happen again, end quote, a reference to Machar and the Boer massacre. Machar claimed Kier was fabricating the coup in order to overthrow his political enemies and retreated into the bush. Many feared ethnic cleansing was coming. The Ugandans feared a prolonged war and instability in the region, so they sent troops to support Kier. The rebels took the capitals in Unity and Jonglei states, located in the ethnically Nuer northeast region. Kier decreed a state of emergency. Fighting spread to Malakal in the Upper Nile district in the north of South Sudan, where South Sudan gets all of its crude oil. Civilians emptied the town, and at least 200 drowned in their boats. By 2014, the government forces supported by Ugandan troops retook every town held by the rebels. This was to appear stronger for peace talks. Kier and Machar reached a ceasefire agreement in Ethiopia. A few days later, due to lack of communication and discipline, the government troops took the small church village of Lir. 
This caused the rebels to boycott further negotiations. Malakal was attacked in February and taken by the rebels, who withdrew the following month, leading to the fifth time Malakal, strategically important city near the oil fields, switched leadership. After the Bentu massacre, where 200 civilians, all Dinkas, were massacred, Kir sacked his army chief. One of the rebel factions, David Yaoyao's, largely Merle ethnic group, Cobra faction, made peace with the government. After Yaoyao was appointed state governor of Pibor, the Cobra faction split and some joined Machar. Yaoyao, an ethnic Merle and one of the many warlords, would become notorious for his use of child soldiers and for being accused of forming an oil company meant to exploit the weakened state of South Sudan. He has since repented his ways and now works to return stolen children to their families. He has returned about 54 to this day. But the kidnapping spiked when nearly 20,000 kids were forced to the front lines during the country's six-year civil war. A second and third peace talk broke down when both sides accused the other of breaking the peace talk rules. A series of shadowy weapons dealers appear selling to both sides. The massive inflow of weapons has had a disastrous effect on the elephant population. Before the long civil war, South Sudan had an estimated 80,000 elephants. Today, the population is believed to be 2,500. And by this point in the war, complete chaos had broken down, with many rebellions inside of the rebellion occurring. Johnson Ohlone led a Shiluk militia that then defected due to the government creating new state borders. The Shiluk thought that it would divide their people. On May 16, 2015, they captured Malakal. Gabriel Tang and Peter Gadet announced that they had split with Machar, and will be fighting against the Dinka and the Nuer because they didn't want either to be in control. Just to mention a few of the many splinter groups from the rebellion. In August 2015, a peace agreement was reached with Machar returning as VP. Kier, on Christmas Eve 2015, increased the number of states from 10 to 28 and swore in all new governors, loyal to him and giving the Dinka strategically powerful positions. The Dinka militias who had now confiscated many Nuer cattle had grown rich. This was a grave insult to the Nuer as cattle is a sign of wealth and masculinity. The Dinka militia groups now pushed into the breadbasket, southern lands of Equatoria, where cattle farming was more prosperous. Peter Martel, a British journalist, wrote, quote, The war had started out over an elite struggle for oil wealth, had evolved into anarchy, opportunism, and revenge. End quote. By this point, the war was mostly dominated by clan loyalties instead of ethnic ties. 20,000 child soldiers were reported as of 2016. Violence erupted again on July 2016 after a meeting between Machar and Kier was attacked. This time Machar fled Juba. Machar first fled to Kinshasa and next to South Africa. Kier had his soldiers rob the Central Bank of South Sudan at night and put up a 5 million US dollar bounty on Machar. Kier admitted to doing so by saying, quote, It was justifiable under the circumstances, end quote. Mass rape had become an epidemic in South Sudan. A study of women at UN camps in Juba claimed 70% of women had been raped. Rape was used as a tool for ethnic cleansing as well as humiliation and revenge. Both men and children were also raped, but both admitting to it less makes it difficult to know how many cases there are. Zainet Bangura, UN Special Envoy for Sexual Violence, reported, quote, Nowhere in the entire world has seen more sexual violence than South Sudan, end quote. The United Nations said most of the attacks were conducted by youth militias and by elements of forces aligned with Mr. Kier. A small number of attacks were linked to opposition fighters supporting Mr. Machar. Almost 90% of the victims were raped by more than one attacker, and often for hours at a time. 
The number of people tried and convicted for sexual violence in South Sudan is extremely small. Due to the chaos, American ambassador to the UN, Samantha Powers, asked for an arms embargo. There are no arms manufacturers in South Sudan. All are imported. The UN took a vote with the USA, France, United Kingdom, New Zealand, Ukraine, Spain, and Uruguay, all voting for an embargo. Russia, China, Japan, Angola, Egypt, Malaysia, and Venezuela all abstained, and the embargo was defeated. The USA eventually placed an arms embargo by 2017, but it was so full of loopholes that it was ineffective. The African Union planned to deploy troops in order to protect civilians. Kier originally refused, claiming, quote, a violation of sovereignty, end quote. After a resolution threatening an arms embargo, Kier eventually accepted, with the condition that there were no troops from neighboring countries, stating, quote, they all had interest at stake, end quote. The government also accepted a hybrid court to investigate war crimes. During this time, the Justice and Equality Movement, JEM, was losing its struggle for independence in neighboring Sudan, in the Darfur region, and was pushed into South Sudan. They began fighting for Juba as mercenaries. The SPLM North, another rebel group in Sudan, near the Upper Nile, also joined Juba. Fighting spread from the greater Upper Nile region to include the vital region Equatoria. The destruction increased the number of people facing starvation to 6 million. The rebels lost ground in the greater Upper Nile and gained ground in Equatoria. In late May, Kier declared a unilateral ceasefire. It was mostly symbolic, as the rainy season would have stopped fighting anyway. Many high-ranking officials in Kier's government began defecting, as Kier was increasingly being accused of Dinka favoritism. By March 2018, nine rebel groups formed a coalition, the SSOA, South Sudanese Opposition Alliance, to negotiate with the government. Finally, in July 2018, the U.S. successfully placed an arms embargo. North Sudan, dealing with economic troubles and interested in the oil of South Sudan, convinced Kier and Machar to have peace talks in Khartoum. Peace was negotiated, but again, after only a few hours, it was violated by a lack of discipline from government forces. They attacked the rebels in the Wa'u state. Peace was again declared in September 2018, ending the five-year civil war between Kier and Machar. In October 2018, Machar returned to South Sudan for a shared power agreement between himself as VP and Kier as president. The number of states was returned from 28 to 10, the pre-war arrangement. The most difficult situation has been the disarmament of South Sudan, leading to clashes between civilians, militias, and the government. On April 30, 2020, despite the power-sharing agreement and arms embargo by the United Nations, Amnesty International reported that South Sudan continues to import arms. Machar and Kier have both since stated that they do not trust each other. Michael Makue, the government information minister, doubts the credibility of the UN and stated that, quote, these claims need to be substantiated, end quote. When asked if he was sorry about the events that had occurred the past nine years, all he said was, quote, all parties should feel bad, not just us, end quote. The government of South Sudan has shown numerous times its distrust of outsiders in the UN. Numerous tragic events of the killing and or rape of UN and aid workers has been reported. After a famine was declared in 2017 in the unity state from the United Nations, the government raised the price of a business visa from 100 US dollars to 10,000 US dollars, citing a need for government revenue. Nearly 400,000 people have been killed. 4 million people have been displaced, including 2.2 million who have fled to neighboring countries, 
60% are reported to be children. Six million people are starving. Today, South Sudan is struggling to recover. As of March 2020, some say South Sudan is collapsing thanks to, among many things, corruption over oil. Oil shortages are common throughout South Sudan, even though oil is the one resource South Sudan has a surplus of. Some people are reported to have slept two days in their car waiting to fill up at a petrol station. Black market rates for oil can cost about as much as 200 US dollars to fill a tank. The country is completely broke, with some doctors making 10 to 20 US dollars a month. The minimum wage is about $7.70 a month. Living in Juba is extremely expensive. The cost is similar to what you would expect to pay in an American or Western European major city. This is because everything has to be imported, and South Sudan produces nothing. South Sudan also has the lowest literacy rate in the world at 27%. The country has only about 300 kilometers of paved roads. One survey found that people of South Sudan have the same levels of PTSD as the people in Cambodia post Pol Pot. Help. If you want to help South Sudan, you can donate using the website World Vision. 87% of its donations go to operating expenses for programs that benefit children, families, and communities of East Africa. You can also spread the word about the troubles people face in South Sudan. The website SaveTheChildren.org has a newsletter you can subscribe to. It's free, and they will send you updates with information about countries like South Sudan. For the brave ones out there, you can either donate or find a job with Medicine Sans Frontiers, Doctors Without Borders. They accept people with all different kinds of skills. You could get a desk job in your country, possibly in the lovely country of Switzerland, where their headquarters is based, or in the fields of South Sudan. South Sudan suffers from many of the problems its fellow African countries do. Corruption, nepotism, famine, and resource exploitation. Oil was the cause of the start of the war back in the 1980s and continued to be the main source of tension throughout the civil war. Malacca, the closest major city near the oil fields of South Sudan, as of 2015 had changed hands between the government and the rebel factions a total of 12 times. I was unable to find the complete number of times throughout the war. The country is only nine years old. Perhaps cooperation with its sister country, Sudan, is the best way for South Sudan to improve. In an ironic twist, South Sudan's difficulty started in Khartoum, and a final peace agreement ending the five-year civil war was signed there. The two Sudans, although unwanting, will always be connected. This was a podcast on South Sudan. Thank you so much for your time. If you enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing to me on Apple, Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts. Whatever you use, I appreciate it. I should be on all the directories. A brief history of. Thank you.